care about families because God cares about family, and that is what we are. We are God's family. That is what his idea was when he established the church. And just so you know, no matter what you're struggling with this morning, and no matter how hard it was for you to come, and no matter what your inner turmoil, inner conflict, or anything like that is about today, no matter how you feel about being here today, God is very happy that we are here together in his name. He is. And because of that, this is really good. We're getting off to a good start because, uh, you know, right there off the bat, Psalm 133.1. Let's just, let's just level the playing field here. God is pleased with the fact that we are here this morning. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people, which is the church, come together or dwell together in harmony or unity. And I love this because when it says that it's good and pleasant for God's people to dwell, another word for that dwell word is remain. Remain. That's very different than just showing up for an hour on a Sunday on the days where it feels good and your calendar is cleared off enough, isn't it? This is an idea of a family that stays together. And, and I don't know what the word family does for you. It probably has to do with the context of your family of origin, but I assure you this, regardless of what rises up in you emotionally when you hear the word family, regardless of what your family of origin is, God's family is where every man belongs. And when you are in God's family, his family is good. And he is a father that remains. This is not a dad that runs out on us. This is not a family that splits when things get hard. He is all about family. He remains. He will not abandon us. Is that good news? That's a great place to start, isn't it? God is like the ultimate family man. When you picture a family man in your mind, he's better. He's the ultimate family man. And I love that it says that it's good and pleasant when we dwell or remain together in it can say unity, but in just as many versions of the Bible, it also says harmony. And I think that's so interesting because if you're a music lover, or even if you just know anything about music, you understand what harmony is, don't you? And you know that harmony is different than unison, isn't it? So I love this idea that, yes, unity, meaning we all have the same goal, um, the same function, and yet it says harmony interchangeably, meaning you can visualize or you can imagine that it's all these different parts, but they come together for that richer, fuller support of the melody. He's the melody. We're the harmony. We all come around him, but we come around him in different ways, don't we? So I adore the fact that God not only loves a family that gets along and actually loves each other, but I also love the fact that God is equally about our uniqueness. And I tell you what, I don't know what message you've heard up or in church or anything, but it was a good long while before I really embraced and understood this. That even my quirkiness, as long as it's like under submission to God and his word, he's all about my quirkiness and he's about yours too. We're happy about this, aren't we? Really, really get this. Unity, same thing as harmony. Unity is not uniformity. 
Harmony is not unison. We are all different, different parts of the body, but all connected to the same body. So I just, I just love that. And when we think about families, this is interesting because Neil and I were having a conversation the other day and I was saying to him, you know, what do you think like my family's known for? We were talking about my family because unfortunately we have had some deaths in my family. And because of that, my whole extended family has gotten together quite a bit over the last couple months. Unfortunately, I have not been able to get, um, they live kind of far away, so I haven't been able to get out there. But, of course, my mom is sending me all these pictures of extended family and great aunts and uncles and cousins I haven't seen in a while. And it's, it's, it's bringing to my mind this idea that, yes, I have this family of five, me, Neil, and our three daughters, and we have kind of a certain, you know, family values or traits or things like this. But at the same time, I belong to a larger family, right? And so there's certain traits or values or characteristics or looks that are within that family. So I was asking him, I'm like, what comes to your mind when you think of my family? Like, what do you think my family's known for? So then I told him what I think his is, and we kind of had a fun time talking about this. But how many of you know that there are some families that just have, like, what we might call a very strong gene pool? You know what I mean? <clears throat> Schrader. I mean, I... Okay, there's like a strong gene pool there, right? Like you can kind of pick them out, you know what I mean? Maybe not the in-laws so much. But there's like a strong family trait, right? Some families just, just have these. But I don't even necessarily mean in looks. Maybe there's just like traits or certain skills like, oh, that family's so athletic. That family's so musical or something like this. Well, the family that has been getting together uh, on my end is the Nicholson family. This is my mother's family. They're from southern Indiana. And um, my grandpa, he passed a couple years ago. But he's one of those guys that if you met him, you wouldn't forget him. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, in a room, even a large room, he's the character. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he's just kind of unforgettable. And there are certain things about him that would stick out to you, I promise. Uh, a few of those things, just to name a few, is um, his radio talk show voice. He has just like this radio talk show kind of voice, and he's very excited about everything he says, and I'm actually talking just like him right now. He also has um, red cheeks, a fairly large nose. He's, uh, he says portly, okay? Uh, or that's what he would say. He also has the most jovial, unique laugh you could imagine. He loves politics, sports, and giving big hugs. Okay, that's just a little bit about him. Growing up, I didn't think there was anyone else like him. But then every now and again, about once a year, my parents would make us go to the Nicholson family reunion. And my grandpa is one of eight children. And Guess what I noticed about my grandpa? He's actually not the only one who has all of those characteristics I just named. His seven siblings pretty much have all of those things I just talked about. They love to engage talking about basketball and politics, and they do it in their radio show voices, and they all have this laugh. And the laugh, if you care to hear, it sounds just like this, because it's very, very unique. It's just like that. It's like not a real laugh, but it's just kind of like this like very like timely, I don't know. But they all do it. All 
the Nicholsons laugh like that. I wish you could come to a reunion with me. It's just weird, but it's funny and it's good. But families, like it or not, there are certain traits that like certain families just have, right? You can't get away from it. And I tell you what, I wonder what God's idea of what his family should look like. What is God's family supposed to be like known for? Because it says that once we call on his name, once we accept uh, his son's sacrifice for forgiveness, and we call on his name, we're now in this family. It's a bloodline. It's in the name. So surely we all have something that we're supposed to be known for, right? In fact, it was funny because uh, I I was out at a store the other day and I came across this T-shirt, which I thought was really funny, and I almost got cheesy and bought it and wore it today, but I didn't. But but the T-shirt says... Um, if you met my family, you'd understand. Do you like that? I really liked it. And now I feel like I should have got it. But anyway, if you met my family, you'd understand. And I have a suspicion that that t-shirt's not talking about looks. I think it's talking about some personality traits, maybe some values, maybe even some quirks or isms. You know, if you met my family... You'd understand. And I thought, I, I wonder if God, I mean, this is kind of a irreverent thought, but I wonder if God would be able to wear this shirt. I thought about it. I'm like, I believe he would want to. I think he'd want to wear a shirt that says, if you met my family, you'd understand. If you met my kids, you'd understand what I'm like. You want to know what our purpose is? To show people what our Father's like. Which, by the way, is going to be really, really hard to do if we don't even know ourselves. <laughs> Neil always makes fun of me that when we go down and we're with our family that I, I start talking like them, like even a few days after we've returned home. I don't want to explain what that means, but whatever. When you're with your family, you kind of start acting a little bit more like them. Hey, when we're with our Father, we should start acting and sounding a whole lot more like him. And this is a great motivator to take that relationship as far as we want it to go because he's not the kind of dad that's too busy for you ever, not ever. Isn't that great? Oh, he has an idea of what he wants his family to be known for because he says it right here. The disciples are actually asking Jesus because they're freaking out because Jesus is telling them that he's getting ready to leave their physical presence. He's getting ready to go to the cross and die, and all they know is that he's going to be gone. And so they're like, well, how are we going to know what your followers are like? How are we going to know who they are? And, and, you know, newsflash, it's not like everybody's going to look like him. None of us look like Jesus. So if you're in a family, if you're adopted, if you don't look like your mom and dad, that's okay. We don't physically look like Jesus physically looked, but Jesus said, here's how you'll know. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my followers if you love one another. And by the way, that word love, that's agape love. That's the love that uh, Neil so beautifully preached on a few weeks ago. If you didn't hear it, you really should go back and listen to that this week. It will bless you. Because this agape love 
is what we are supposed to be known for because it's who God is. And it's the kind of love that expects nothing in return. In fact, in its purest form, it's known as benevolence um, or charity, or it says to be well off uh, because of someone else. Oh, we're well off because of someone else, aren't we? This agape love, that is what we're supposed to be known for. And of course, as you so eloquently described, we can't really possess this love outside of Christ. Again, this love thing, it's what we're supposed to be known for, but it's in the family name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I'm talking about, just to be funny, the, the Nicholson family reunion and certain things that you'll see that they all have. But you know, one day, we are all, all believers, the universal church, believers past, present, and future, are all going to be gathered up. And we're all going to be in what you might think of as the great family reunion. And even the family members that you've never met, you're going to recognize them. And it's not going to be because of a strange laugh or a large nose or the love of politics. It's going to be because this agape love thing, it's kind of this mysterious thing, but it has a look, and we're all going to have it. Isn't that amazing? In the great family reunion, this gene pool is strong, agape love, and it's going to be fulfilled in us. No more broken little holes in our attempts to express this love here on earth. It's full. And who is in the family? Romans 10, 13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord are in this family. It's all in the name. And we're going to talk about that a minute because the, the profession of the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, Lord meaning his reign in our life, and Savior meaning his forgiveness of our sins, that is actually what distinguishes us as God's family or the church, the profession of the name of Jesus Christ. So what is the church? You know, the church could be the local church, which, of course, in our case, the local church here would be the Edge Church, and there's plenty of local churches where we get to help each other and encourage one another to live out this gospel and get to know God better and help the world do so as well. But also, there's the universal church. Again, that's everyone who's professed the name of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. That's the universal church. And when we see the word church in the New Testament, uh, it could be referring to local church. It could be referring to universal. And sometimes and oftentimes, it's actually referring to both at the same time. But the first time the word church is mentioned, which is in Matthew, we'll get to that, it is definitely referring to the universal church. And it was brought up by Jesus himself. And the word in Greek is actually um, ekklesia. I don't know if we have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when you break up that word just very, very specifically, it's assembly, which refers to people, and called out ones. So really clear, we see that um, here's what the church is not. It's not a building, right? It's, um, we still have church if we just decide to go out in a parking lot somewhere. Yes, we can, because it's people. It's not a location. It's not a time slot. It's not Sunday from 9 to noon in churches all across America. 
It's not a location, it's not a time slot, it's not a building, and get this, hold your breath here, it's not even a denomination. Uh. Right? Okay. It's an assembly called out ones, people. And so, of course, then this kind of begs the question, called out ones, okay? This begs some questions, doesn't it? Called out of what? Called out to what? Called out by whom? Called out for what? How come? I mean, we could keep going on. Like, this is a little vague, isn't it? So let's unpack it. In fact, if you really just want to get all those answers in one verse, there's one verse that really just packs it all in there. It's in 1 Peter 2, 9. We're going to see how cool it is later that Peter's the one that actually summed this up. But here's what 1 Peter 2, 9 says. It says, you, meaning the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you could proclaim the praises of him who called you out of what? Darkness and into marvelous light. And I, I just want us to go back over this one again because it's just super rich, isn't it? Let's go back over it again just real quick. And if you're the kind that likes to make notes and stuff in your Bible, this would be a great place to do it. You, meaning the church, are a chosen race. And let's talk about the word race for just a second, okay? Because race can actually be, um, it, it can actually be family, okay? So the word we see a lot of times is race, but it can be family. So this is describing family as a race. I think that's kind of cool. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Royal indicates like supreme authority doesn't it? And priesthood indicates access to God, because that's what priests were back then. And it also indicates people who would minister to God and to people on behalf of God. And then a holy nation. This is a nation of people who are holy, meaning they're not like everyone else. Holy is set apart. So if it seems a lot of times like you're not like everyone else, well, that's probably good, actually. And it's a people of God's own possession. Some translations say um, God's treasured possession. This means we're not just a random family. We actually belong to someone. We belong to God and we are a treasured possession. He claims us. But for a purpose. Called out for what? Called out so that we can proclaim. See, the declaration and the profession is where it's all out here. So that we can proclaim the praises of him who called us out of what? Say it again. Darkness and into light. And I think this is so important because have you ever seen like celebrities or something that become like really a big deal and stuff? And sometimes they'll say things like, well, I've never forgotten where I came from. Right now I'm thinking Jenny from the block, but it's whatever. But we, I don't forget where I came from. It could be hard for me to move on. Um, We don't forget where we've come from. You know what? In this family, in God's family, none of us should forget where we came from. Because we all came from the same place. I don't care if my sin looked a little worse, if in your mind I seemed a little more lost. Dark is dark. And that's where we all came from. And this should keep us humble. 
and embracing each other, no matter when and how we came to this profession. We all came from the same place, dark. And we all should be living in the same place, the light. So the first time this word church, ecclesia, universal church, is mentioned in the Bible is in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. If you've got your Bible and you want to open it, they're great. Otherwise, it's going to be up here. I'm just going to read through verse um, 18. And this is uh, maybe a familiar passage to you if you've been around church for a while, but this is where Peter, um, one of the disciples, this is where he first makes the profession or the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah meaning the one who saves. So let's read through it just a, a little bit straight through. When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Love this. But Jesus said, What about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Good, isn't it? I just love like listening to that just in succession. But I, I want to break it down just a little bit because there's just a lot of richness in this. I won't even be able to cover it all, but I want to highlight a few things. And one of them is this. Right out uh, of the beginning of this, this story, Jesus asked, who are people saying I am? Who are people in general saying I am? Because you know what? Guess what? Everybody's going to have to answer that. Nobody gets out of it. If you decide to live your whole life and not give it another thought, what you actually think about Jesus, guess what? At some point, you have to answer for it. Everybody does. Who do people say I am? People have to answer for it. And then it's interesting because uh, they kind of say, well, this is what people are saying. And wouldn't this still be true if Jesus were standing here today and he said, hey guys, who are people saying right now in 2020 on social media and in different venues? Who are they saying that I am? It probably sounds similar, right? I mean, maybe not like, we don't hear people saying, well, I think they think you're John the Baptist. No, but aren't they kind of saying, well, some say you're a good teacher. Like some say you were a good man. Some say you were a lunatic. Some say you were a narcissist. Like some think that you didn't really happen. You were fictitious. So we would still see a variety of answers. And then Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And actually, that you is you plural. He actually asked this to all disciples. Who, who? So this would be like, now Jesus is looking at, at us, maybe. Who do you say I am? And I love Simon because you know that guy in class that's always the first to respond? <laughs> that's Simon. And Simon says, <laughs> see what I did there? I didn't even mean to. Simon says, <laughs> again, hard to move on. Okay, 
He says, you're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the one who saves, the son of the living God. And so he individually answers this question that was actually asked to everyone. And what he said was correct. And Jesus affirms that. And then he says, what Jesus says is so very rich. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. When he says blessed, blessed just means favored. Favored by the Lord. And I love this. It can also mean happy. Those don't seem to go together, or do they? If you know, if you really, really know that you're favored by God, my, my twins will say, you know, she's the favorite in that class, or she's the favorite. Yeah, and you kind of like it, don't you? Like, you kind of like it when you know you're the favorite. Okay, if you know you're favored by God, you ought to be pretty happy, I think, right? So he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And he calls him by this individual name, the name he'd always been known by growing up. So it's very personal. And then he says, by the way, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Nobody talked you into this. God himself revealed this to you. And it says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Weird, because he just called him Simon, and now like a sentence later, he's calling him Peter. Peter means rock. They all knew that because names meant uh, things, and people really understood that then. So everybody knew that the word Peter meant rock, like a single rock. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, uh, blessed are you. Uh, you didn't hear this from people. You actually heard this. Your spirit opened up, and it responded to the Holy Spirit, to God who was calling you. And because of that, he calls him Peter a rock, and it says, and on this rock, except this time when he says on this rock, it's plural. It's not an individual rock. It's plural. So you'd think he would use the word rocks, but the reason it's not quite like that is because it means like, um, it's not like a bunch of different rocks. It's rocks that are like assembled and melded together, like what we might refer to as like a boulder or a mass of rocks or like a rock cliff. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. This is a really cool thing because what he's saying is, upon the profession and confession that was revealed to you by God, every person who professes this, I will assemble them together in such a way that that is how I'm going to build my church, and no attempt of hell will overcome it. Will there be attempts to destroy it? Yes, we know there will be. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. Will it win in the end? No. Do we see some churches going away? Do we see some churches shrinking? Yes, we do. But you know what? God is not intimidated by this. It could be that he's whittling out people who just attend a gathering on a Sunday morning. But for the real believers, the real church, it's not going away. It's not going away. So we do not have to be worried. That's why we don't have to get caught up in things like attendance or followers. On it. We don't have to worry about that. God already told us nothing. No attempt of hell will overcome this church. It will remain standing. I just think, whoo, so cool. And I don't know if we have that picture. Um, a couple years ago, Neil and I went to Colorado, and we hiked these 
one mountains in, in flat uh, irons in Boulder, Colorado. I don't know if you've ever been. Uh, sorry for like the me, whatever. But I wanted you to see, I think that's a great representation. Didn't know that was going to be so big, but <laughs> okay, I'm just being honest. Okay, you can take it down. But the, the, the rocks, you know, the rocks, okay? You can see very clearly, or you could see very clearly, that these are individual rocks, but they're all assembled together. Literally, you're just walking from rock to rock. And I love that when Jesus describes his church and he says, hey, don't despise, you know, the smaller parts of the body that don't seem important. We need them. I'm imagining now this visual that he gives us, this imagery. And I'm thinking, you know, how foolish would it have been if I'm climbing these rocks and I would have thought, well, you're not as pretty of a color. Well, you're not as smooth. Well, you're not as sharp. So you're not as important. Hey, if my foot's on it, I need it to be glued to everything else. Right? Otherwise, I'm in way trouble. And by the way, that picture does not do justice to, to show you how high up there we were. I was pretty terrified the whole time, actually. But I thought that was a great picture, a great image of what he means when he says, I'm taking this one rock, one person that will profess my name. And every single one person that does that, I'm putting them all together. That is my church. And we prevail. Let's just get a few things clear about this so that we never read the scripture the same way. Who is the one, this is actually interactive right now, who is the one that's building the church? Mm -hmm. He says, I will build my church. And whose church is it? His church. It's not ours. We're not building it. All of our attempts to build his church outside of him are in vain. We need his spirit. We need his vision. We need him to go before us. We need to be led by him, in step with him. None of our attempts outside of that will be any good. Well, we could grow this place if we were fancy enough. I'm sure we could. But his church, the people who really know him, who are professing his name, who are doing his work, we don't build that. He does. And what is he building it on? He's building it on the profession of his name. And by the way, again, who reveals that truth? The Holy Spirit. God reveals it. And what is the core characteristic of his church, of all believers, of his family? The core characteristic there, our destiny is overcomers. Overcomers. Isn't that just like a super powerful word? And if you know what Jesus accomplished and you understand that he went to the cross and you understand everything he endured, like doesn't it make sense that if we're in that family, that we are the ultimate overcomers? Because who overcame like Jesus did? You bet we're in the family of the ultimate overcomer. I just think that's so awesome because you know what? I'm not nearly as impressed by someone who seems to be doing well in life but they've also had kind of everything handed to them. No hardship. It's like, hmm, nice. But that person that's just doing really well, that person that you're like, wow, that, that's just somebody that has a lot of joy. They've got a head on their shoulders. They've got vision. They've got a good family. These things that like you might, and, and you come to find out they actually didn't have all those things or it took a lot of obstacles for them to get there. Now that's impressive. Don't you think? We are the ultimate overcomers. Does this mean that we don't have trouble? No. In fact, overcoming indicates by nature of the word that we have to overcome something. 
right? So we have to overcome some troubles. So, oh yeah, we'll have trouble. And just in case we didn't get that, and we didn't read between the lines, he says it pretty clearly later on. John 16, 33. In this world, you will, not like you might, not like you could, not like odds are, but he says, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Overcoming is a strong gene pool here in the family of God. And you know how I know it? Because when you go all the way back to Genesis, this was his idea of his family originally. This is kind of weird. I just learned this this week in my studies. But back in Genesis when he, you know, made man and woman and, and uh, you know, he, all creation, and he gave them the order to subdue and fill the earth. Interestingly enough, that word subdue, strangely, also means prevail or conquer. Like conquer or prevail on this earth. His idea from the get-go was that we would have authority, that we would prevail, that we would overcome on this earth. And he's never changed his mind about what he wants his family to be. We see the links that he's gone to. And by the way, if you're having trouble in your life, it could be that God is wanting to take you through this and show you, you can overcome that fear. You can overcome that doubt. You can overcome those feelings of whatever, intense uh, loneliness, feelings of failure, all these things. He wants to take you through it so you can see that he'll take you to the other side. So what does this mean? If we're still going to have trouble, but in the end we overcome, what good does that do us? Well, it ought to change our perspective a bit. Because when we have trouble, I don't know you, I don't know about you, but I am still not um, immune to feeling the weight of the trouble. No matter how much I pray or whatever, like when I'm in a bad situation, I still feel bad about it. You know what I'm saying? And so how is this supposed to matter? Well, even if you're sweating it, even if you're anxious, even if something is hard, just knowing that in the end that we overcome, that this thing we're scared of, that it won't overcome us, there ought to be a bit of a perspective change about it. And th this is kind of like a funny example, but it just came to my mind, so I feel I have to share it. Um, this because gives you an idea of a perspective change. Has anybody, does anyone remember the Harlem Globetrotters? Do you remember what those, okay, the basketball team, the, I don't even know if they still exist. I'm not, do they? Okay. And so the Harlem Globetrotters were, was a, a professional basketball league, but they were kind of like entertainers. So they would go around and do these like fancy tricks. And when I was young, there was even a, a cartoon about them. But uh, so they would play these tricks and it's entertainment and all these things. Well, when I was little, like little, little, uh, maybe five or six, the Harlem Globetrotters came to our town. This is like a big deal. People don't come to our town. It's like small, you know. And they were coming to our town, and it was going to be this big um, fundraiser that they were doing, I think, for children and cancer or something like this. And my dad, who was a really good basketball player, he was um, recruited to be on the team that was going to play opposite the Harlem Globetrotters, okay? The only thing I knew at the time about the Harlem Globetrotters was that occasionally on a Saturday morning I would watch their cartoon, okay? And I knew my dad, I'd watched how many games of his, so I knew how he could play. So every game I went and saw him play, I had a little cheerleading outfit on. So I, I had that on, and I'm sitting in the front row, and I remember, like, nobody really prepared me for this game. I don't know if my parents just, 
I think we do this to our kids too much. We drag them along to things. We don't really tell them what they're doing, you know. So I'm just thinking I'm going to a basketball game. Same gym I'd watched him play in before. You know, basketballs, warm-ups, nothing seems too different to me. But here's what I remember. You know, when you think back on your childhood, it's just kind of in little flash memories. So this is like a well-thought-out memory. It's just these little pieces. But I remember this piece where it was like my dad was standing in front of me, and he was like driving to the basket. I was waiting for him to go up, you know, for the layup or even the dunk. He did that a lot. And, and all of a sudden, it's like he kind of stops, and then this guy comes up to him, steals the ball, and then dumps confetti on his head. And everybody started laughing. And you're laughing. And I get it, but I didn't then. And when I was little, I was like, and the whole gym erupts in laughter. And I'm thinking, somebody's being mean to my dad, making him look like an idiot. And everybody's laughing at him. And I know he could have made that shot. And why didn't he? And it was just just very confusing. And of course, then the game, it's like it just keeps going like this, you know? Eventually, my mom explains to me, Honey, this isn't that kind of game, okay? They're, they're just here to entertain and make people laugh. They're like comedians with a basketball, you know? And the point is not for your dad's team to win. But I was a cheer. I wanted my dad's team to win, you know? I would get mad when the Globetrotters made the ball. It just was, so I didn't understand, you know what I'm saying? If I had understood, oh, they're supposed to win. Oh, this is really just about entertainment. Like, probably my perspective would have just been a little different. Funny enough, and this is true, in talking about this story, my memory was so splicey about it, I actually had to call my dad this week and say, hey, i got to jog your memory. I need to make sure that this really happened and that I'm telling it right. And so we talked about it, and it was so funny because it's neat talking about something that happened when you were a child to your parents now when you're an adult. It's interesting, isn't it? So he didn't know how that affected me. I guess I never talked about it. So I'm talking about that with him, and it's so funny because obviously – He never told me, a five-year-old, how it affected him. But he told me on the phone the other day, he goes, yeah, I hated that. And he said, I got to tell you, I told him I'd never do it again. (laughs) I mean, they're like raising money for kids with cancer. I'm like, Dad. And, And he goes, well, Brandy, I'm sorry. And this is exactly what he said on the phone a few days ago. He goes, I'm an athlete, not an actor. Okay? And he said, I trained to win. And he's like, I can't do it. Can't do it. Messes with me. You know what? When we allow life to beat us up to such the degree that we have actually given in to the thoughts that we're always going to be this way, that it's always going to not, you know, that our life doesn't matter, we're never going to overcome, and all these things, we forgot, you know, we're an athlete, not an actor. We're overcomers. We are not overcome. We're in his family not our family of origin. We're known by love, not our mistakes. And there's another time where um, Jesus very specifically talks with the same exact analogy and imagery about building on a rock. And it's just a few chapters before, so I think it's really cool because the disciples would have already recently heard Jesus talk about this, but of course now they're probably reflecting on it with a different lens. And by the way, I've had somebody ask me recently how I study the Bible, and and there isn't really a method, but when I'm studying something like uh, Peter's Confession on the rock, and I'm thinking about the rock, and I'm I'm trying to think, where else in the Bible has the word rock been used? And then I just kind of go, and I look it up, and then I start looking. And I tell you, I don't know if that would help you, but for me, 
it has just helped looking at the depths and seeing all the common things, even from Old Testament and New Testament, is just, just amazing. So I want, to, I want you to hear just a little bit about this. When the wise man built his house upon the rock, do you remember the story? It's from Matthew 7, 24 through 27. The wise man who built his house on the rock. And by the way, that word rock, it's not a single rock. It's plural. It's that boulder. It's that mass. It's that cliff. Jesus was almost giving a little teaser before he really got to the real lesson of it all because he hadn't had the confession yet, you know? So this is what it says in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came the streams rose, and the wind blew, and beat against the house. And yet, it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on a rock. And then, of course, he compares it to the man that built the house on the sand. And all the same things happened, except then it said, and the house fell with a great crash. You notice that it says that the winds and the rain beat against the house. The word house is representative of our, of our lives. They were trying to build lives. You ever feel like life is just literally beating you up at times? Or is it just me? It does sometimes, doesn't it? You know, I think this is interesting. Because in this story, the man who built his house upon a rock and the man who built his house on the sand, there's, there's a kind of a compare and contrast in there. Because the two stories sound almost just alike. And just, just I think this is kind of interesting. There's a lot more in common about these two than there is different. Quantity-wise, not quality. Here are the things that are alike. Both men had a dream. Both men worked very hard, hardworking. Both men were working hard to build a life. Aren't we all? Aren't we all like working hard to try to build this life? And isn't this interesting? Both endured storms. Just because I'm in God's family doesn't mean I'm not going to experience storms. Do storms and trouble in my life mean that I've gone wrong with God somehow? No, they don't. Both families, both lives had storms. The only difference was the foundation, which, by the way, once a house is built, you can't see the foundation. It's invisible. You might not be able to see the Jesus that is in me. That might be invisible. But if my life is on that foundation, nothing, not even an attempt of hell, will overcome me. And it won't you either. We will all still be standing in the end. Once again, like in Genesis, meant to prevail, meant to conquer on this earth. House built on a rock. The storms come. But guess what? We're still standing. And in the end, we are all still standing. 
And that's why I think it's so cool that Peter is the one that ends up writing in 1 Peter 2.5. We are all like living stones coming together to build a spiritual house. Actually means dwelling. God's Spirit will dwell with us forever together. And you know what? The team can come up now because I just want to end with this one idea. It says we're all like living stones coming together to form a spiritual house or a spiritual dwelling. It's a permanent home, a place where God dwells permanently. And I love this because Jesus actually gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of that home. It's when he's getting ready to leave and his disciples are super stressed out. They don't want him to leave. Of course, when he leaves, he's going to leave his spirit with them. But this is what he says to them in John 14, 2, and it's for us as well. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. In other words, I don't lie to you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you.